Hello, welcome to Polyhedron, your multifaceted podcast for everything RPG-related. I am your host, Matthew, and as always, I have my two co-hosts here, Ryan. I like the interview episodes. We have to do less. <laughs> and Scott. It's a little weird and disjointed, though. It is a little weird and disjointed. But uh, I like I like that we're doing it this way better now. Uh, uh, yeah. Listeners, it probably doesn't mean anything to you, but we've changed our logistics of how we do interviews, uh, and it's working a lot better. Yeah, it secret. just makes it smoother. I have a secret. We've already done the interview. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, we're, we have, we're going to get to, uh, you all will hear very shortly, a interview with Eddie Webb of uh, Onyx Path, also of about his personal game, the game he owns, called Pugmire. I believe we, we heard from him during the Scion? No, yes. the, the Trinity. No, not Scion, the Trinity. Trinity yeah. The Trinity uh, Continuum. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very cool guy. This is a very cool interview. We've already had it, but we wanted to make sure we get through a little bit of the news. There's only a couple of stupid dog jokes in there. <laughs> only a couple. Yeah, just I have a zinger. Pure, he does. Purest gold. Yeah, he does. Um, I have a couple couple animal anecdotes. Anyways, how's your guys' gaming? Uh, really good. Um, uh, Amber starting up. Uh, next week is the first actual session, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to be editing these session zero. Uh, this weekend mm-hmm. uh, to get that ready to go. That shouldn't take you too long. We need to do some intros and whatnot, and and some other like little little ADR fiddly kind bits. of stuff, fiddly bits. But I'm going to get that rolling as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Werewolf this week. Oh, let's yeah. hopefully we do. Oh man, <laughs> it uh, always comes down to him. It always comes down to him, but that's <laughs> fine. Uh, and Aeon tomorrow. Uh, yeah, Aeon's yeah. going to be super cool. We're in the crap now. Oh um, yeah, no, you guys are on planet, and it's uh. It's time. And what about you, Ryan? Anything new in gaming world? I mean, I'm going to go play Never After in like 45 minutes. Cool. So that's oh, that's what you're going to go do. Okay. That's yep. cool. Gaming-wise, I haven't done much, except for, and I already told Scott this, that I had to rewrite my entire fucking backstory for Amber. But you know what? That's okay, because you're going to hear about that little story at DragonCon. We can talk about it. Yeah, we yeah. Can. We can in great, greater detail. Um, we're going to be at DragonCon. Uh, the Friday, which I believe is the 31st, will be uh, at 5.30, I believe in Gallery 6, but double-check the schedule. Which building is that? Uh, they'll be in the Hilton. Hilton. It'll be in the Hilton. Hilton. It should be all in the Hilton, because that's where all the podcasting has been in the past. Uh, if, But again, make sure you're checking yes. your app, make sure you're we'll make schedule. Sure that, we'll make sure that show notes uh, are updated with the yep. information. Um, we'll I don't have the public stuff I can really show just yet. But as soon as that is, I will get that out to everyone. It'll be out on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and I will also be making a Facebook event. So anyone who's interested can just go onto the Facebook event, say you're going to go. That way we get a very rough tally. But please remember, space may be limited. We have two other groups we're going to be with. Yeah, we're going to be with uh, Vicious Mockeries, who are a D&D actual play podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and Botched. Which is also also a D and D actual play uh, podcast. Yeah, very different though. Very yeah. different oh, styles. Yeah. Totally very different. Just from our, we had a very brief conversation with them, like all of us getting together in like in Eland. Yeah, and yeah, their their shit's different than our shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the, the, the spices are are different, but it's a good blend. But it's a very good blend. I think um, the, uh, they're we're all on the same page now, so that that's great, and we know what we're going to talk about because the main topic is going to be kill your darlings. Yep. From a character perspective, from a GMing perspective, we'll be taking questions from the audience. It'll be very like fun and interactive because we've gotten confirmation from the main podcast track guide that we will have. I forgot who makes them, but there will be throwable, squishy uh, uh, microphones. 
That's hilarious. Yeah, you can literally throw them out in the crowd and they can toss it to whoever. Speaking of conventions, Gen Con just happened. Yeah. You may Uh, have realized, you may have noticed there was an extra episode, a very, very (laughs) special episode of Polyhedron that dropped uh, the morning of. Yep. I hope you noticed. Yes, please notice. I will say that on Facebook, our, our little link for that had many, many likes. With people I don't know or have friended yeah, on Facebook, and I have extended my, I extended invitations to all of them to to be a part of the page, and and the download numbers have are pretty decent for that one. They're, they they actually took a bit of an upswing the last couple of days, which I'm cool. very happy about. Cool. Um, I've been trying to get the word out for that one because that Jason Carl answered all oh. my questions. Oh, it was a fantastic. So, and there was some there was some hot there you know there was some hot takes on there. It was mm-hmm. good stuff. Yeah, and also uh, and those guys were super super gracious. They gave us a press copy of V5. Yeah, we've been pouring over that. It's real it's interesting. We're not going to go into a lot of detail right now because we've just been skimming it, but I promise you not probably within Expect a month. Expect a deep dive pretty yeah. soon. Yeah. I mean, if it's not 100% clear we're in their camp, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we're on their side. Yeah. Until something else happens, we're pretty we're pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, they've made some blunders. They've admitted to making blunders. They've made them right. Yep. Um, you know, and the content is really good in the, the book. The content's really good, you know. And, and some people just can't be pleased. They <laughs> just can't. Yeah, they like to nitpick over, like, layout and art art choices. Uh, which, the like, actually, art's really... Yeah, I like, actually cool. I like the art. I think it's modern and cool. Yeah. Um, so. Gives you a wide variety of perspectives on mm-hmm. the different clans, because actually, just a just quick sort of thing. Every single one of the clans gets you like six or six or eight different pictures of all different yeah. like body there's, types. There's, there's a lot of really cool stuff. And yeah. Argy stuff it, it yeah. hidden in the letters and all the like the, cause there's like 30 pages worth of like written documentation material. That's like, in, looks like handwritten letters and typed type up of, manuscripts yeah. and stuff. And there's lots of hidden shit in there. There's, yeah. There's URLs and QR codes. Yeah. And I mean, nonsense. And, like, a, and as per usual, congratulations to whichever kick funder <laughs> just got funded. <laughs> and everyone who survived Gen Con. I mean, that's yeah. kind of an ordeal for a lot of companies. It's a big thing that they do. They learn a lot. I know I had a, was following everyone on Twitter mm-hmm. that was at Gen Con. They were talking about all the stuff that they saw and what the book has been going on. Maybe one year we'll be there. We're gonna yep. try to. We're uh, gonna. I'm gonna try to be like social media active when we hit Dragon Con, so we can sort of have a sort a lead up. I'm gonna be landing on you know. Thursday night, Friday morning. Yeah, I will so. be there. I'll be Thursday night. I'll be there Thursday night if people want to come talk to me and chill. But we'll probably do the big meeting and then we'll be able to do whatever afterwards. I'll only be there Friday, so. But you should, that means that if you want to come on it's, and hang out with it's Scott. It's a limited time offer. Yeah. Tweet hard. <laughs> Tweet hard. Um, but anyways, guys, if that's all, let's go right into the interview with Eddie Webb. Hey, Eddie, how are you doing? Good. How are you guys? We are Love just it. fine. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on again. Yay! Thank you. Yeah, if you, if obviously, if you guys are you're familiar with the voice and the name I just said, that our good friend of the show is back on the air, uh, Eddie Webb of uh, Onyx Path, uh, and uh, if I remember, creator of Pugmire. Yes, creator and owner. Ooh, oh, yeah. I got a couple of questions about that uh, last tagline here in a little while. Absolutely. Um, but again, thank you very much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. I know you just came back from Gen Con. How was that? My arms are tired. <laughs> flapping. Flapping yes. like a bat. See, if you said flying back from Gen Con, that joke would have worked better. But, would have. Yeah. Yeah, you have a traveling. You, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> what was your favorite thing there? Um, and you can't say the Onyx Path booth. <laughs> well, of course not. Um, let me, the, the best personal thing for me was... Uh, Kevin Simbita came by and picked up a copy of Pugmire and it's like, this reminds me of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm like, 
Yes. Wow. Yes, it does. That's, that's, that's high praise. Uh, I'll drink a cup to that, man. That's great. <laughs> um, they're very cool. So, but we already mentioned about Pugmire, and that's what we're here to talk about today with Mr. Eddie here. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, Eddie, tell us about Pugmire, and in extension to that, what inspired you to make Pugmire? So, uh, Pugmire is a fantasy tabletop role playing game and other stuff, but it's set uh, far in the future of our world. Um, humanity is gone. Maybe they've died. Maybe they went to space. Maybe they turned into giant psychic brain clouds. Who knows? Um, but dogs and cats and other species have been left behind to kind of inherit the world. So it's uh, Lord of the Rings meets Planet of the Apes, but with dogs. Hmm. Um, and yeah, it's based on a streamlined uh, D&D 5th edition system, which is something that's new for Onyx Path. It, it's right. not a D10-based system. Um, uh, it's something that we, you know, it's a chance to kind of explore something different and, and try new things out with with the kinds of games that Onyx Path makes. Um, and I mean, it kind of came to me uh, in, a, in a couple of different ways. Um, I think like most gamers of a certain age, you always had that kind of desire to do your own fantasy, epic fantasy world mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, I'm going to make uh, you're gonna have a huge binder and it's going to have all this information about different continents and, you know, species and, and different you know organizations. But I never did it for a couple of reasons, one of which was um, I ended up working professionally and so I didn't have time to work on my own magnum opus. Or, and the other was that uh, I'm finding as I get older – um, my desire and my player's desire to read a whole bunch of material to play a fantasy game, it just diminishes rapidly. Definitely. It's like, yeah, it's cool that you have 300 pages of history, but give me the five minutes I need to actually make a character with. Right. Um, so that was kind of in the back of my head. It's something I'd like to do, but never really had a, a strong reason to. And then separately, um, uh, I was in the process of moving between houses for a job. Um, and the company gave me access to an apartment for two weeks while we were waiting to get into our next house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was trapped in a one room apartment with two very bored pug dogs. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, I was just trying to like keep them entertained to keep me entertained. So I'm talking to them and I'm running out of things to say. And so I started just doing D and D adventures based on their personalities. <laughs> you're you know, not the only it's pug like, owner. Right you're walking through the forest, and then you you shoot a laser, and you you know sniff them out and try to find them. Um, and I think actually this kind of works. Uh, and so I started playing with that idea a bit, um, and I started you know realizing different dogs and different kind of personalities in the classes and different. You know, breeds were kind of roughly equivalent different D and D races, and I started just thinking it through, and then an old idea kind of came back. Mm. Um, plus, I mean, I've always loved games like Gamma World, you know, TV shows like Thunder of the Barbarian, all yeah. that kind of post-apocalyptic uh, sci fantasy stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The nice serious take on on the after the, everything has been destroyed, um, and again, and, and actually, uh, Palladium's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was another big influenced the back of my head um and so kind of putting it all together i started actually seeing how that would look as as a cohesive idea and it it kind of really stuck so i tried a uh short story with it uh for an anthology and the editors anthology loved the story and they basically said when are you gonna make the rpg because they knew i was a designer i was just like i didn't really thought about it as an rpg before weirdly enough because i was kind of in the head of fantasy fiction yeah so 
I put together a pitch for Rich Donix Path. I've worked with him for at that time, you know, about 10 years. Uh, and I was like, you know, hey, what do you think? And he loved it. So we started working on it. So did you intend to start using it like as with a D&D base or did you have like a custom system in mind or what, what was that decision process like? Yeah. When, when did you make that decision? So early on, um, my, my first pitch was for uh, a Dungeons & Dragons uh, style system. And uh, we, we explored other opportunities using uh, the um, Onyx Path uh, Story Path in-house system. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's actually a lengthy conversation about Pathfinder because at that time Pathfinder was very, very big. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was right uh, at the end of the 4th edition D&D cycle and the rise of the 5th edition D&D cycle. Um, uh, but we talked it through, and ultimately I said I wanted a game that looked similar to, but was not identical to Dungeons & Dragons for a few different reasons. Um, uh, from a marketing perspective, more gamers are familiar with D&D style systems than any other systems. So if it weren't something new for Omics Path, it made sense to me to try to reach a different audience. Because at the time, I figured the people who are really into the dark and gothic vampire the masquerade aren't going to want to play a dog about cute dogs. I was wrong <laughs> about that. Um, but at the time I was like, you know, well, let's try to shoot for a different audience and maybe it's game system to be part of that. Um, the other piece was that uh, the Dungeons and Dragons system acts as kind of a uh, lingua franca I found for um, – Various different tar- RPGs because if you're trying to convert between RPGs, a lot of people will go through D&D as a design. Right. Um, because again, it's kind of – love it or hate it is the kind of the center of our industry from a design perspective. We, we think about it. Either we're deviating from it or comparing to it. Mm. Um, from artistic side also, um, Pugmire, a lot of the vibe of it is about um, nostalgia. The nostalgia for what is passed on and nostalgia for better times. Um, in this case, the dogs have nostalgia for when humans were there and are friends with them. So it's kind of a bittersweet moment. And I felt that having a D&D system so that players who are playing with their kids or have played role-playing games a long time ago, oh, I remember how this works. It looks vaguely familiar. And it, I try to get it so that way it resembled the Dungeons & Dragons system people remember, not the one that was actually there. Hmm. Mm, yeah, while also still being um, accessible for a modern audience because people understand the very basics of a 3.0 slash 5th edition rendition of that system. Exactly, right. Um, yeah, I definitely enjoy, when I was looking through the book, um, it, it's a very cute book, by the way. I really enjoyed the different Thank breeds you. and all the all the classes. Also, I've noticed that it's a fairly low level from a D&D perspective, a low level game, because it only goes up to about 10th level. Like yep. that's generally where it's at, and that creates a sort of a, a not grittier, um, just a uh, less having you have to deal with less, less, less yep. workload for the player, so they can play their little pooch or cat because of the monarchies of Mao off and do their own adventures. But you can still challenge them with sort of more mundane things without going too weird and epic with it. Right, yeah, and, and uh, again, there are kind of two reasons for that. One is a lot of what you said is that um, I wanted to kind of keep the scope down a mm. bit more. Um, uh, I, I expected people who wanted to play uh, long periods of time for, for higher uh, levels 
would have enough knowledge to be able to also kind of hack in pieces from D&D 5 to be able to extend in that direction if they, mm. if they really desired to. Um, so I didn't feel like it was necessary to provide that. Um, also, I wanted to, uh, on a mechanical level, um, keep things a little solid because in my experience, uh, fifth edition is a bit of an exception, but in general, D&D systems tend to go off the rails around level 15 or higher. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily a design problem per se. I, I think that that's a very interesting and cool style of gameplay, but it does move it more towards really high fantasy, high epic power games. And it just didn't fit the tone for what I was reaching for. Yeah. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Again. Exactly. <laughs> um, from, from, a, from a creative side also, um, the other reason why I kind of stuck with it is, I wanted to find a way in the game to reflect the fact that dogs have a shorter lifespan than, than humans do. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought by having the one to ten character level, it would encourage people to play a character to finish and then maybe start up another generation of dogs after that or play a different you know, version of the game or move on to Monarchies or Mao or whatever. Um, there's just the fact that your time with these characters is a bit more limited than in a usual circumstance. So again, kind of an homage to the fact that our, our, our furry friends aren't usually with us for as long as we are, as like the rest of us live around. Well, now I'm sad. However, I, I was uh, about to say, man, your description of this game is like both intriguing, but so full of melancholy that I, I've been frowning. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I was going to say before you made me sad uh, was I, I, I bet that that also keeps it accessible to kids, uh, yes. which I wouldn't doubt people playing this game with their kids is a big, big thing because, you know, kitties and puppies. Yeah, absolutely. And that was uh, something that... Um, by doing the Kickstarter for the game while I was still in the process of finishing up the game, it was actually very helpful because I did see a lot of families backing up. I had always intended it to be what I pitched as family-friendly in the sense of it's not a kid's game. Mm -hmm. It's not a game purely for adults. It's kind of a wider scope so that kids are getting it at one level and adults are getting it at another you can, level. You can scale it to fit any sort of table that you need it to fit. Right, exactly. But in the course of that, I did find not only were a lot more kids excited about getting involved, even running the game, um, but also separately, uh, a lot of adults who hadn't previously been interested in tabletop role-playing games or hadn't found quite right the game to play with um, were attracted to Pugmire. So it allowed me to kind of uh, uh, polish off some rough edges to the system and also to reassess the game a little bit to make sure it's a little more approachable for people who aren't as familiar with tabletop role-playing games. Yeah, I've actually talked to Eloy uh, of Third Eye Games about this, that he's got Mermaid's Tale and I believe mm -hmm. and a bug, like a, I forget the name of it, but it's like you play bugs uh, exploring uh, like a house and doing mm -hmm. defending against more aggressive bugs of like the idea of creating more role-playing games where they're kid accessible to where mm -hmm. you can teach your children and their friends how to role-play in a, in a much more approachable sort of interesting and fantastical way because they'll, Oh, you know about bugs, you know about puppies, you know about cats, you know about even rats and lizards, um, which I'll get to in a little bit later, but you know about these things and you can play them and you want to have fun with them without like being super serious about it. Okay. Early. Hook them, hook them early. Get the, get the virus in there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, I, I have to admit, uh, not being a dog person myself, uh, Pugmire never really hooked me a while. And mm -hmm. then came Monarchies of Mao. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay, that's the one I want. Uh, 
so I've been I've actually been been reading that over recently, and it's inspiring. Like I I am I am loath to pick up a D twenty, but Monarchies of Mal is making me think about it. Yeah, he really does not like. <laughs> yeah, he's not a D and D person. Uh, but I, I can see him really loving cats and doing the Monarchies of Mal. So let's actually talk a little bit more about the setting. Um, we have Pugmire, which is sort of the nation state of dogs. Yep. Um, and many, many years ago, they had a big bloody war with the cats. Um, yep. And the cats sort of congealed into sort of city-states um, under a loose uh, rule set uh, called the Monarchies of Mao. And they went into sort of essentially houses uh, and family houses. But so is Pugmire. Pugmire has specific houses based on the breeds of the types of dogs that you are. Um, and they sort of vie for a measure of power over the big state city of Pugmire, even though there are smaller cities and towns around Pugmire outside the main walls of Pugmire proper. Right. From a political perspective, the main difference is that Pugmire is predominantly a kingdom and to a certain extent an empire. Yeah. Um, it, all power stems from one throne all the way down, and the families are vying for uh, uh, authority, control, whatever, underneath that layer. Um, whereas Monarchies of Mao is much more kind of Renaissance Italy, where you have six different city-states that are all trying to uh, manipulate, manipulate and maneuver themselves into positions uh, of power authority or, or to unravel certain schemes. Um, so a little bit of Renaissance Italy, a little bit of uh, Roman Empire in that mm. respect too. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, in in understanding that, uh, you've talked about badgers, which is a whole family of, of, of those types of animals. You talk mm. about lizards and you talk about rats. Are you guys planning on doing other Kickstarters to start to get at least small supplements or full books based around those types so people can play them? Funny you should mention that, actually, because just at Gen Con, uh, when we were recording this, it was like a few days ago, um, we did announce that I'm going to start working on an outline for what we're tentatively calling uh, uh, Pirates of Pugmire. Uh, which is a chronicle book for both Pugmire and Monarchies of Mal. So it kind of shows you a little bit more how to put those two kinds of characters together and also to explore beyond the established areas, how to go over the acid sea, um, how to, uh, you know, do more exploration into your chronicles, you know, rules for sailing like that. Um, and since this is about travel, um, I wanted to include, uh, rules for how to play lizards specifically because they're one of the nomadic uh, species in the core, both core books. Right. Um, and also birds. So you can play a parrot. Oh, I forgot about the birds. Shoulder. Yep. Right. Yeah, they, uh, they, yeah, you talked about that, and that the main antagonist. There's a lot of antagonists in, in the in the scope of the game. So there's plenty of like remask and reskin sort of baddies. You've got ants and insects that, mm. that the dogs and cats have to deal with. There are the rats, but there are only certain groups of rats that are really bad rats. Where you have mm. other rats just get a bad rap from the other rats, and then you also have like what you call the unseen, which are essentially what you can consider demons. Yep. Um, as far as anyone else is concerned from a D&D perspective, is you have the Unseen, which I thought was brilliant. It's like, Scott's like he, Scott was like, well, you know about the Unseen. And I was like, what's the Unseen? He's like, you know about the, the you know when a cat like freaks out for no reason? Mm-hmm. That's the Unseen. <laughs> that is something that a human can't see, but they can, and mm-hmm. are trying to ward it away from the human, which yep. I found instantly adorable and, and instantly relatable because you mm. always have that old adage of cats and dogs being able to see something that you can't. Exactly. And uh, actually, it's one of the reasons why, um, well, there's lots of reasons why both cats and dogs got distinct games, but that was the big part is that 
the dogs and cats fighting against the unseen is one of the few things that keeps them gives them a chance to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, otherwise, there's a lot ideologically uh, and geographically that keeps them separate. But that's one thing they can agree on, which is where they're starting to slowly broker peace. Whereas the other species, it's not as relevant to them. Um, uh, like lizards, kind of coexist in the same space as humans as pets, but there's not really a the same a bond there. Connection there, yeah. I mean, I mean, I had a snake, I've had a, a, a gecko. They were wonderful pets, but you know, it's a different kind of bonds. Um, birds are the same way. You know, they, they have a different. I mean, they they'll also be able to uh, have a, some edicts about the unseen, but it's be a bit more kind of um, canary in a coal mine, alert system style, rather than aggressively going after a warning. Yeah. And then rats and mice um, uh, have a very kind of love hate relationship with humanity because. The, their jewel places some of them at their heads, but also some of them were experimented on, which is why there's they kind of have a an odds relationship is not as as protective or or in the cat's cases it's not as subordinate as with humanity. Yeah, with humanity. you've you've basically divided amongst the domestication lines. Like, have we sure we can have a lizard and a snake as a pet, but they're not truly domesticated. You can't you can only they're very limited their intelligence to what they'll uh, do for you. Whereas cats. While they definitely do feel probably or act like they're they're not exactly subordinate to you, there is a relation. There's a strong relationship between a cat and a human. Well, yeah, um, we're, we're their faithful retainers. Exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. They have they have roped in with their cunning and guile. Uh, actually, I would say is reading through the Pugmire book because this is what I always do with a new book. I start going, well, if I ran a game, what were some of the meta plotty things I do? It's like. Oh, there's so many open-end things, especially with the humans disappearing. And obviously, if your game is about nostalgia and like looking towards the past, you can be like, you're obviously going to eventually drop hints of what happened to the humans. And that can be anything you want it to. And I just thought it was very open-ended, which I love. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, interesting, you mentioned that because I know I never plan to actually address that point in any Pokemon media. Because for me, nostalgia is not about fact. It's about yeah. what you think is true. Right. So uh, instead, there's lots of... Hints and seeds, but they're all intentionally kind of contradictory and, and weave in and out of each other. So you never get a full, clear answer. It's always going to be, okay, well, there's this piece, but it doesn't work with that piece. And then this other character says one thing, but that contradicts what this other third character believes and what this book says, because nostalgia is about what you think is true. All right. Very that, cool. That's a very cool thing. I know, I know the ideas that I've been having when I've been reading through Monarchies of Mao. Uh, is just to you know go dark and weird with it because that's what I always do. Absolutely, uh, yeah, and yeah. and and the phrase that just keeps going through my head is meowses of the blooded. Uh, <laughs> you can do that. Uh, you can in fact do you that. can do that. If would you like just use the houses of the blood system? No, but no we're all we'll cats go, we'll and dogs. Plug mine. I was just telling Ryan I really enjoyed the uh, uh, magic system because part of the nostalgia, especially the artisans, they have to have a focus based on like some of the weird artifacts that man used to use or so, utilize. I actually have a system question. Sure. And it's it, this is more of a general thing. It's like so what was the main divergence from the indie that like you absolutely positively had to have like from 5th edition? Um the main one actually kind of where I started my let me take a step back. When I design, I'm always designing with the idea of what experience do I want at the table? Um, because ultimately the rules shape uh, behavior and behavior is what you want, especially in a tabletop role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Um, so the stuff that you want to focus on and explore in depth, that's where you give more rules weight to. And the stuff that you don't want to see as much of, you pull rules away from. 
And I did not want an experience where people were required to kill characters. Um, it, it felt off tone. I wanted a, a system where running away from big scary monster was absolutely a valid strategy. Um, and so I ditched experience points. That was the best way to resolve that issue. Right. Um, uh, because at first I had designs about, you know, what well, you just defeat them, overcome them, but I couldn't find criteria. That made sense. Finally, I just got rid of them entirely because in every D and D game I've played, everyone levels up at the same time anyway. So the DMs just kind of moving points around to do what they want to do. It's just a world level after a certain point. So I just jumped to that. It's like, okay, you get a level whenever the guide says so. Mm-hmm. At the end of an appropriately epic story. Um, that's actually interesting. You, you went in that direction because that's actually how a lot of the Adventures League stuff is going to. They're they're be less caring about XP like points and doing something called a milestone system where they're like once you hit cert- a certain number of milestone, you level up. Everyone mm. once you hit that number, so you don't have to track specific point totals. You just kind of do it when the GM tells you you can do it also known as what most D groups have been doing for 20 years yeah that's why they started exactly doing. right and um, that was the other thing that um i wanted to do is um uh, i actually have a lot of respect for uh, uh the osr movement the very old school renaissance gamers who are trying to bring back that late 70s early 80s gaming style um and i know i grew up in that time period you know i cut my teeth on that style of gaming um what a lot of the aesthetics of osr didn't quite fit with pugmire but a lot of the intent did you know it's like like i said it's like you know this is how people are playing the game anyway so let's just cut through the meat and just award the game right right the game the way it, it, it's meant to be so like um uh i reduced the amount of dice ads to uh from i mean 5e does a pretty good job of simplifying it anyway i reduced it a bit more so where you're only really rolling off of the, the six attributes Right. I mean, you have some skills and some other wrinkles here and there. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, I'm lifting a heavy thing. It's a strength roll. I'm trying to trick somebody. It's a charisma roll. I just base it off those six attributes and modify from there. And so, again, the kind of design was starting from the attribute outwards rather than the the kind of inherited design of you have this score, then you have to derive a modifier from that, and then sometimes there's skills, and you add those pieces together except for when you don't. Yep. Um, so I just kind of said – I dumped all that and just, okay, cool. Here's the six, six attribute modifiers to your dice rolls. Build from there. Hmm. You made sort of a, cl- a little bit cleaner, a little bit simpler system. Yeah. Again, because you're, again, the goal was to try to approach things uh, easier so that younger people could more even more easily acquire it and use it. Or Absolutely. To, or to reduce the headache of That's those right. of us who have been doing a long time and just, this is, like I said, just... It's what we used to do anyway, so why you know why worry about it? Um, so now that we got a sort of an overview of what the setting and the system is, let's let's get into a little more specifics that I, I know I'd like to explore. Uh, sure. Which one was your most? What was the most interesting breed that you sort of worked on? But that was actually that was one of the the challenges when I first started working on this because initially I did do it closer to a traditional D and D style of well. Pugs get these direct modifiers and, you know, Pomeranians get these direct modifiers and so on and so forth. Um, And I realized that there was no way I could do that without forgetting someone's breed because there are all – all the breeds that are recognized by the AKC, which are different from the breeds that are recognized by, like, say, British Kennel Clubs or yeah. Australian Kennel Clubs. Um, and, of course, there's different name shifts between countries occasionally. There are, you know, some mixed breeds are recognized as distinct breeds. It, 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 it's, it's just a lot. Um, 
So instead, I kind of went down to seven breed groups, um, six of which are based roughly off the six ability scores, uh, and then mutts to kind of be a little bit of everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but the chief of, of the thing, canine world. Um, you know, it's the you, you know you're not great at one thing; you're okay at a couple of things. It's very kind of of K to V. But I mean, the first couple of passes I made at it, uh, uh, there were a lot of people who had very strong opinions. I'm well, my dog doesn't go in that group. He go in the other group. Um, and right near the middle of the Kickstarter, um, actually close to the end of the Kickstarter, uh, a, a, a one of the backers turned out to be a canine cognition expert. And she reached out to me and said, here's how a dog's prey drive works. And where they stop in the prey drive is roughly what group they get categorized as. And that really helped me to clarify how the six different groups work. That's awesome. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we, we talked back and forth about where to move the the, the various dog breeds, what I call families, around. And I made a couple changes just – because from a visual or, or uh, aesthetic perception, I kind of need to break things up and, and offer some variety. Um, but largely that kind of was helped me to nail it down. So, I mean, I was having particular trouble with um, hounds in general because I liked the idea of there being a kind of ancient hound family where there's like lots and lots of branch families. Right. So you have, you know, uh, uh, you know, hyphen, like fox hyphen hounds and, you know, all the, all these other hounds, Transylvania hound, um, and I just like the, the the feel and the aesthetic of, of that. So I kind of need to keep them roughly together. Um, so things like that. Uh, but I mean, uh, as far as like challenges, once I settled on that structure, a lot of things fell into place. Um, and I was able to actually to take the the initial design frustration and turn it into an advantage. Um, so, for example, uh, I was trying to think of a because in Pugmire, all of the what we call breed names now are surnames for characters. Right. Um, uh, and some of them work really well. Pug works fantastic as a surname. You know, uh, Pomeranian works great as a surname. Um, some character, some breeds didn't quite work well. I was able to kind of fudge it a little bit. Uh, like uh, Shin Ibu just kind of smushed it into one word. Um, but, uh, German shepherd was a particular problem. Uh, I could call them shepherds because shepherds are the group, uh, that are the cleric analog. They yeah. are the worshipers of the church of man. So I couldn't call them shepherds. Uh, and I couldn't call them German cause that just doesn't feel right. Right. Um, I don't like naming after a country that, you know, existed. Um, and so when I moved to Ireland, uh, I found that they were called Alsatians. Hmm. And I'm like, that's perfect. Um, so that gave them the name Alsatian. Uh, it sounds perfect. It fits really well in the world uh, and allowed me to take that fluidity between cultures and how we approach different dogs uh, and turn that into an advantage in the game. And also that means that even in the game world, there might be related families that have taken on different names because to reflect the different name groups we have. Yeah, you could also see it like you know, maybe they find like a weird document that says something about a German shepherd, and you're like, what's a German shepherd? We we know what shepherds are, but what's this German thing, and how does that relate to everything? And then it creates a giant mystery for your PCs to deal with. All right, cat. There's a kitty in the danger zone. Sorry. Speaking <laughs> of kitties, uh, I'm playing Jack in your Monarchy Zimau game, by the way. Okay, fair enough. Um, be a big doofus. So speaking of Monarchy Zimau, uh, as we were talking, uh, did you have a similar process going through with, with that game, uh, or was that a bit more streamlined? Uh, it was definitely faster because, I mean, a lot of the uh, design decisions I was going to make, a, a chunk of them I'd already made with Pugmire. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that said, um, I do know I, I did not want to do things differently. I mean, uh, Monarchies is a distinct game, and mm-hmm. so I wanted to make sure that what was going on with cats um, felt authentic to the the cat experience, if you will, um, without a watering down the Pugmire experience and b um, making the char- the output of the characters largely compatible in because I knew that was another goal. Is that you know I want people make characters somehow. They should be able to use like monsters and characters from Pugmire easily and vice versa. So even if you're not a cat person, there's still value in buying Mao because you can use the monsters and the spells and everything in there and just pour them over. Um, but the big thing I've noticed both in my experience with cats and other talking to other cat owners is that breed is not as important to us as humans. Um, I mean, when you're a dog owner, if you're a casual dog owner, it's like my dog is a mutt and I'm, I'm proud of the fact they're a mutt or my dog is, you know, a pity or my dog is a pug. Um, and with cat owners, it's like my cat is kind of orange. Or <laughs> my, my cat, cat is, is a cat. Mm-hmm. Right. But more specifically, people refer to their cats usually by color or look yeah. rather than by breed. Um, and so that, that helped me with the first part. So the house colors, for example, are very important. If you're a member of a cat, one of the six houses for cats, um, you wear those colors in your clothes and that becomes an important part of your personality. I, you know, I wear a little bit of purple if I'm part of Siberian and so on and so forth. Um, but the other piece was that um, whereas dogs, the, the six – breed groups, you're kind of stuck with them throughout. You make a character and you're stuck with that. Um, but with cats, you can move around. Um, so you may have a family, but what house you swear allegiance to is where you get your biggest mechanical chunk and also um, how you largely identify to the game and the world at large. Uh, so I, I was able to kind of I, – I still wanted to work some of that in. So like the house names are all cat breeds. Um, but I was able to make those a little more strategic. Like, for example, uh, Mal is the oldest house because that is the oldest cat breed mm-hmm. um, that, that, that dates back to uh, Egyptian times. Um, and also, I mean, Monarchy's amount really helps to sell as a cat game. Yep. Um, but it also allowed a nice nod to uh, our Egyptian connection to cats. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the Siberian, you know, I was able to play with that because they're big, fluffy, hardy cats. And also our western perception of siberia as a country you know, so I'm, i moved them a little further north as a as a monarchy you know they become a little more uh, staid a little more stoic uh so I, I could do things like that which were interesting and compelling in a different way than i'm going to take my dog use their use their breed as the last name put their name as the first name and go uh there's a, a lot for more fluidity and and uh dynamism which i think was appropriate for a cat game very cool. I'm actually very intrigued now because I, I read, I did read a good deal about Pugmire, but I unfortunately hadn't had time to wa- read a lot about Monarchies of Mal. But now that I understand about Pugmire, definitely want to dive into Monarchies of Mal now because I want to see the differences. I want to understand more about their dynamics because you have, you already mentioned it, but we haven't gone over it yet, is you have the religion of man. Um, yep. basically what makes a good dog because one of the things I remember reading about is like this isn't a this is a game like a traditional D&D game more about where you have good and evil you have good and bad it's like the right. ideas of the morality is subjective your ethics it's more about your ethics and how you how you view yourself in relation to everyone else and you make it very clear it's like your morality is that not solely dictated by what you are all about it's about how others view you and how they right. how they approach you and deal with you, whereas the cats obviously have their own very different code, and that's where the conflict comes between the two. But dogs have the idea of man helped us 
lifted us up and gave us uh, an edict or an ethos to live by, and that's what makes us a good dog. And you right. use the capital D for dog to denote the entire species of uplifted dogs. Yeah. I mean, the best best way I describe uh, and how I thought about the process is that for dogs, ethics and religion are external. Uh, humanity dictated to dogs how they should act. There's a church that enforces that ideology, and other dogs reinforce it with each other. They, they judge amongst themselves who is a good dog, who is a bad dog, who has done well, who has done poorly. Um, and some of that is subjective, but it is external culture-based faith. Mm-hmm. Um, with cats, it's internal. Um, I believe myself to be an excellent cat. And I must remain worthy of humanity's service to cats as a concept. Um, so I need to be good in a sense of I have to be worthy of the, the trust and love that my servants, humanity, put into me. Um, but that's for me to decide if I am worthy or not. Other cats have their own opinions, and they may be okay cats, but I – need to see myself as, as as a better cat and have to prove myself consistently to be a better cat. So I am driven by my own interests and needs to be the apex of my morality. And when I slip, other cats may take advantage of that. Um, you were shaking your head, Scott. So. Well, just I love every word of that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wear my chauvinism on my sleeve. Uh, I, am, I am a die-in-the-wool cat person, and I love the way that you've you brought that aspect of them out into a more relatable. All cats think they're the best cat, and I mean, that's yeah. that's the whole point. Is and they're constantly vying with each other about being what the what it means to be the best cat, but it can never happen because they all think they're the best cat. Right, <laughs> and then that actually um, led to some interesting uh, culture design because, um, like I said, I, I definitely knew I wanted to get a kind of. Uh, Renaissance Italy, you know, like um, Assassin's Creed 2 vibe, uh, the first act of Romeo and Juliet yeah. vibe. I wanted to get all of that kind of into it. Um, and uh, just a smidge of, of Chinese and, and Japanese culture. Not a ton, but it's a little bit. Yeah. Um, but all of them are, are ultimately face cultures. It is about um, making sure people perceive and, and see you in a certain way. Um, and so uh, the dogs have a, a – for. Uh, part of the point, a dogmatic culture society. You know, there are things that are objectively good and bad, and you have to address them. Um, where the cats is that because everyone's trying to get the best benefit, and everyone needs to be seen as a, a good member of society. Transgressions are actually tolerated more in cat society because you do not want to be the person who everyone turns on and tears apart. Right. I mean, so if I if I take advantage of a cat who stumbles, then who knows when another cat will take advantage of me. So there's kind of – everyone has a certain amount of tolerance. Everyone kind of politely ignores when things go wrong. And that, again, there's that kind of cat thing of I fell off a, of, a, of a windowsill and I walk like nothing happens. And it's the same thing in, in cat society. Because they're like, in if, the game. I, if you ignore it, if, if you all ignore it, I will ignore it when you do it because we all know that you do it too. So right. Yeah, it's the mutually understood. We are all fallible, but no one will directly address the idea of this fallibility because that makes us all look bad, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and then that allows for a nice segue into things like dueling culture and political intrigue. Because then, so similarly, you want to. Everyone needs to. If if the default assumption is that I'm going to keep things quiet when they go bad, secrets become a very prominent currency in a part of society, which again leads to great Machiavellian. Uh, um, uh, 
renaissance level of intrigue, which is exactly what I wanted. Uh, that sounds really rad. I mean, the whole thing sounds really rad because it's such a simple idea. Hey, would everyone like to play a game where you're all cats and dogs? Yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and then anyone, everyone's immediately says yes, but then you put that several layers of really deep thought behind like the culture, the religion, the state of the world, so that everyone's got everything they can play with. Plus you, you smashed in like, here's all my D and D versions of things like, uh, but I'm going to twist them. Like you have what's what I was very striking. They put a picture in the book of the giants, but it's a giant with a dog head and a cat head on it. So it's like this weird, crazy creature. You're like, that's a giant ogre, two headed ogre thing, but it's weird as all get out. It makes matches. Nothing. What I'm used to in D and D. Right. So um, I actually going back to the sort of uh, the shama- almost shamanic nature of the uh, dog magic, like how they actually wield sorcery as a sort of a having a totem of of man. Yeah, there's so yeah, guy. Yeah, there's, how do cats interact with? Actually, let's let's just talk about magic because I'm pretty sure you didn't throw out the Vance. You, you probably threw out the Vantian magic system. I I didn't get yes. It. Uh, so how does magic function in this world? How does mm-hmm. it? For dogs and cats, I mean, I'm sure there's a line of demarcation between the two. There's a little bit, yeah. There is. Uh, so I kind of have to talk about the, the, the metaphysics of the world a bit. Sure. Um, since this is far in the future of our world, um, I've taken a very literal interpretation of, of one of, uh, of Asimov's law, which is that any um, – Especially advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right. In this case, that's literally true. Uh, the, the characters have inherited extremely advanced technology, and they believe it to be magic, um, combined with a lack of context for this technology. So magic is just as valid as explanation and anything else as far as the characters are concerned. So from an ideological standpoint um, – uh, dogs are super users. They have found this technology in a variety of ways. Some of it's internal to them, like physically internal, like nanites. Some of it is uh, items that they recover, and it's all expressed through magical language. But ultimately, they take existing technology or what they can find of existing technology and use it extremely well. Uh, um, so, for example, um, magic items, there are certain magic items in the game that you can actually put your level improvements into them and make yes. them better. So if you have a plus one sword, you can spend your level improvement make a plus two sword or a plus three sword and then give that sword to your puppies and they now have a plus three sword that they can carry on. And so you have your Excalibur style. Dogs can do that. Cats can't. Um, the flip side is cats are hackers. Uh, they get power from taking technology apart and breaking it and finding the power that comes from that. Um, so uh, it, it dogs find magic items and improve them through use and over time. Cats can break an object and internalize that object's power and improve that. Um, so from the dog perspective, he said, it's kind of a, a shamanic um, uh theistic vibe to their magic that's intentional for both the Church of Man and their kind of using items for power level. For cats, it slants much more towards things like necromancy and elementalism, um, the chaos magic, the the fact that things will ultimately erode because that's where they draw their strength from. And so the cats aren't worried about the next generation because they believe in reincarnation. Uh, they, they had, man, man told them they had nine lives and there's nothing <laughs> to disprove that. Um, the, the, the worst part is that from an outside game perspective, the game explicitly says this is not true. 
Mm-hmm. Cats do not actually reincarnate. There's an optional rule you can do if you want to, to use that. But cats actually don't. They just believe they do. And, <laughs> and there's lots of magic and stuff that gives them implications that, that they do. Uh, so they're investing in themselves because in my next life, I'll get better. But the secret is they don't actually do that. I absolutely adore the idea that they've taken an, an idiom yeah. of mankind and wrought it into faith and in, in, in ideology. I absolutely I adore mean, that. It sounds like an axiom. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it is yeah. core to their being. Core to their being, but it's utterly, it's utterly wrong, and it's just something we made up. Um, right. That sounds. Uh, but to, to go from system perspective, since we kind of yeah, uh, I, I need to go back to kind of explain the system. Um, uh, so, from a reading the book perspective, spells look very similar. Um, you know, they're 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 in various levels. Um, some of them require uh, uh, time or investiture. I got rid of semantic and verbal components because those are now idiosyncratic to the calling and the kind of magic you're using. But, yeah. you know, you'll see like uh, range and, and uh, duration and all that. Uh, but instead of memorizing and forgetting spells, instead you have spell slots. Um, and each level of your spells, how many spell slots you spend to cast it. Uh, one wrinkle to kind of reflect the fact that this is ultimately – you as a character are powering this technology on some level is that spell slots go up in level, but they are modified by your constitution mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because a part of you is actually doing that. And similarly, there's a rule where um, you get uh, stamina dice, which are like hit dice you can spend to recover stamina points, but you can also use them to recover spell slots. Yeah, which is Again, really cool. Because by it's the way. kind of all drawing from the same well. So you can heal or you can have more magic, but you can't really have both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's yeah, cool. I, I like it. Um, also, going back now, I just remembered something. Going back to what, how cats do magic and stuff. Now I understand when my cat at one a.m. decides to take a glass and just toss it off the end of the table, and let it shatter all over everywhere. He's just trying to get the magic out. He's of trying it. to harness the cat. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> also, um, that's also how cats duel. Um, if you want to challenge someone to duel, but you can't find a justifiable reason for it, um, you go to their house and buy hospitality by face society they have to invite you in as guests and you find something valuable there's and while you're looking at them you knock it off and break it so then they're honor bound to challenge you (laughs) so take the magic out or maybe they're trying to challenge you to a duel you don't know that is utterly delightful that is so funny uh, How many it. times has Scott done that to me? Scott, do you wish to duel me, sir? <laughs> <laughs> do you bite your paw at me, sir? <laughs> oh. I, I do. I, I bite do. my paw, but not at you. Oh. <laughs> yeah, um, th- no, this entire game just sounds, like I said, I can't say it enough, utterly delightful because it's such a simple concept, simple system, but there's just so many cool layers um, and it's always fun to go be a little cheeky with it. You're like, mm-hmm. cause we understand what the real situation with dog and cats are. And then we can take some of those ideas we have and just go a thousand percent with them into the future yep. and then go, okay, don't you do it. Don't you look no, at that me actually you breaking that. my glass. Therefore you may be looking at him, but you're doing me. He Sorry about that audience. It's a very <laughs> visual thing. He bites his paw, but not at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're both very cute and interesting. I'm actually, I know we are uh, the one, <laughs> The one group I'm actually interested to read about the most, and, I, and it was actually the mice and the rats. I'm mm-hmm. interested to see what what your relationship and how to use them, because I bet they get into get there a lot of like very good like essentially dungeon delvers. They're very very good at getting to the places that no one else can get into, and mm-hmm. that they explore 
the histories of man and the world a lot more extensively than the other ones do just because of by the writ of where they can go. Well, they also co-evolved with us. Like, they have yeah. a very special relationship with humanity. There's a reason they can digest basically everything we can digest. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And as a rat person, I would love to see that too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You own rats. Yeah. I'm saying, I mean, and, and again, I, I also have had rats too, so I have thoughts on that. Um, I, I don't have a yet a project to put them together on, so it's kind of a down-the-road thing. But uh, what did, from what stuff you see in the books, um, the rats and mice used to have a city uh, that something happened to it, and that's intentionally kind of vague right now. Um, so they're a diaspora. Uh, they don't really have a place they call their own. That's why we see them in both Pugmire and Mal because they're tri- they they much like you say um, rats co-evolve with us, so they thrive best in civilization. Right. Um, there certainly are wild rats and wild mice, but but they they typically p- predominantly prey animals at, if they're out in the wild like that. Right. Um, so that that's one side of it. Another side is that, um, like most uh, uh, dispersed populations, they generally get shoved to the margins of civilization. So that's why you know they're in the cat quarter in Pugmire. That's why they're in the worst places in the monarchies of Mao. Um, part of that is a little bit of that is their intent, but a lot of it is just because. People don't treat non-indigenous populations well. Yeah, not only indigenous populations well, but but you know if you're a diaspora, if you're coming in, if you're refugees functionally, even if it's for centuries, you're going to get pushed off the margins. How thoroughly yeah. human of a, of them? Absolutely, um, and, and it allows me to play with that. And also, again, we like you say we have this connection with with rats and the underground. Um, so uh, I, I have ideas of move, of doing something like an underdark style of thing that would be uh-huh. that would be really good that's what i was thinking about because just the idea of where rats and mice are very are, are similar but very different in their approach and perspective on things and just like what you can and a lot of where the unseen are and how they sort of maybe deal with them or at least have a better understanding of what the unseen are because of their sort of cloak and dagger nature uh, I just think that's all very cool. Yeah. Also, and, and also, you actually good you mentioned cloak and dagger because um, that's the other thing is that their um, rats and mice as presented are much more morally complex. Yeah. Um, they don't have a very clear. I'm an exemplar of my society. I am not an exemplar of my society. Divide. Both dogs and cats have some form of that. The rats and mice really don't. It's much muddier, and that's by design, which is why my current idea is that rather than giving them access to magic spells like dogs and cats, I'm thinking of giving them a form of psionics. It allows me to work another old school power system in, but also it's very kind of rats of Nim. Um, Yeah, I was about to say that. A scientific connection to humanity, which I want to play up on, and also – they're about mentally controlling people and getting in their heads and think, finding out what their thoughts are, which fits into when you are a marginalized society. Those kinds of things that would be very powerful and useful to you, but also makes you even more suspicious and outcast. Right, because yeah. everyone's like, no one can relate. It's harder for anyone to relate to you. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you said Rats of Nim because that was probably one of my favorite books as a child. And mm-hmm. that, that just makes them all the more intriguing as, a, as an idea to play around with. And so you, I believe you mentioned that there's also some content relating to birds. What can you tell us about that as far as how they operate and what they're like? Uh, that's still kind of up in the air at the moment. Um, I knew that uh, when I first made the game that I wanted to have birds in there somewhere, which is why there's a very quick reference to them in the Pugmire book and in the Mal book. Um, but I also knew that they weren't as connected. They're – uh, probably generally somewhere near Mal because I'm trying to put each species in rough proximity to 
the animals that it has relationship with. So mm-hmm. dogs and birds don't so much relationship, but cats and birds do. Um, so the vague idea I currently have is that the cats and birds hundreds of years ago coexisted. The cats were horrible to them, and the birds said, well, then fuck this, we're off. Um, and so they moved somewhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know what that looks like yet. Um, my instinct is a Sky Kingdom, but also I feel like that changes the power level a bit more because mm-hmm. it, it slides it back to epic magic then. Yeah, because no one can sure. really get – other than the birds, no one can get there. Flight changes everything. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's the thing is like on the one hand, it makes sense because then, well, we, we don't see much of the birds because they're in a different location no one can get access to. Um, but then it does kind of change the texture of the world a little bit. So I'm still mulling it over, honestly. I don't have a firm answer on that yet. Um, I do know that I want to have the ability for birds to coexist with characters, but they're going to be a little – uh, rarer. Um, I'm thinking of like when, uh, if you've read the old uh, Robert E. Howard Conan stories, when he first comes across the Asir, um, he it's described as they're strange. They have blonde hair. What color? Why is that? You know, it's it's weird. Their hair has no color, um, and their eyes are blue. I've never seen blue eyes before. Um, and then as he starts to become friends with them, their society makes sense and the language kind of shifts to uh, be a little more normalized once Conan becomes the character becomes more understanding of their culture. So I'm kind of like positioning birds in the same place is that they're going to be a little weird to characters who never experienced them before, but then I'm going to use the mechanics to kind of normalize them. It's okay. Here's how, you know, they're, they're prominent on pirate crews and traveling because they don't mind going through locations, but they don't generally spend time in dog can civilization because they've had bad experiences in both cases. Yeah, and also, I mean, uh, I'm not a very familiar. There's only a couple people that I know that own birds, and from my understanding of trying to own a bird, I'm like, that's a very different experience. It's a different relationship, and that birds are very weird. Like they have, they don't, mm-hmm. they, you don't read them like you can read a dog or a cat. You can get to understand the body language and mannerisms of your dog and your cat, even a rat to an extent. But to a bird, that's very alien to me. And so right. you need to feel, make them feel alien in order to get across the idea that they, they work differently and they, they don't relate to everyone in the same way. Right. And also since um, uh, a lot of birds can actually live as long or even longer than humans, um, I, I feel like in the fantasy space, birds are kind of the elf chunk oh, yeah, of absolutely. the cool. space. That's a- They're the long-lived, weird, enigmatic race that no one really knows much about. So it kind of fits into that rough category. And, and actually, in, and I'll just – as my two cents about it, it giving them a, a Sky City at some point is not a bad idea because that gives them that mythological out in the West uh, – perspective of like these are the old ancient birds that that they go to the sky city in the west or wherever because they have all the ancient wisdom because they've had so many years to accumulate it and it gives them that more alien approach to everything that's a good point Sorry, dude, I just need one to throw that out. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I don't know what I, I love because now that the games are out there and people are starting to, to connect with it and understand it, um, I can kind of bat these ideas around a bit more with, with other fans because, you know, they have some context and texture. Because before, you know, there was just no context for what I was doing. And so people are like, you know, put more fart jokes in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it, rubber dog, rubber balls are, are magic <laughs> items. And it's like, we do need to get going. Uh, I got a couple more things. Thanks. Go ahead, Ryan. Oh yeah, honestly, like when you when you made the reference to Robert E. Howard and sort of slowly familiarizing himself with these people, I sort of like had passages in my brain of like a Marco Polo and Kublai Khan's court, sort of an mm-hmm. outside observer writing journal entries about these these weird avian creatures and slowly like, like learning about what their culture is actually about. And, 
that's yeah. where that's where my head went immediately. Yeah, that's like, that's actually a really good way because I could see that could be a dog, Marco Polo being a dog going to the monarchies of um, uh, one of the houses of Mao. I believe going, you meant Barco Polo. Bar- oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, uh, before we go, we knew we were running a little long in the tooth for the interview. But uh, I just want to thank you very much. I really enjoy tricks. I like the idea that you can upgrade your magic items. That's actually one of my favorite things from Earthdawn and all that other stuff. Um, what do you want to plug before you get out of here? Uh, I plug almost all the Pugmire stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other thing is we just finished up a Kickstarter for uh, a cooperative uh, deck building card game in Pugmire called Fetch Quest. Yep. Um, and that is close to done it was already pretty done when we did the, uh, the kickstart now we're just kind of doing rules clarifications we're getting last bits of art in um and then we're sending it off to the printer soon so it should be available for purchase early next year um so but all of this stuff and all the other projects we're working on people can find at realmsofpugmire.com cool. uh, it has links to everything on there including podcast interviews i have done um, oh yeah how's uh, onyx pathcast going uh really good actually um uh for listeners who don't know, um, me and two other uh, in-house developers on XPath, uh, Matthew Dawkins and Dixie Cochran, we do a weekly podcast. We just talk about what it's like to work at OnyxPath, what it's like to work as full-time freelancers, um, we interview people who have worked on our books before, um, and it's been really, really fun. Uh, I, I thought we'd run out of topics 12 weeks in, but we're just keep going and going strong, and people yeah. are interested to hear about the process, so that's great. Uh, so I promised myself I'd wait to the end to ask this. How are the Aeon books coming? <laughs> <laughs> um just today um uh i got uh some some saw some files from the layout persons uh for the core uh, trinity core um so we're now that uh scion origin is out to backers scion hero is being proofed mike's hard you know fin- worked on uh, trinity core is going to turn around and do some work on trinity aeon um still gonna be a few more months because it's First book of new lines, so there's a lot more to discuss, a lot more to review, think about. Yeah. But they are just chugging along. They're 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 doing what they need to do. Um I talked with the Aeon line developer at Gen Con, John Sneed, mm-hmm. um, and he's uh getting close to wrapping up the final drafts for the uh Aeon expansion, um, which is all the stuff, this stretch goal stuff that we couldn't get to in the Kickstarter. That's in a separate book now. Um, and we announced the first supplement that we're going to work on, which is called Distant Worlds, uh, which is the not only the interplanetary, more planets, more space travel, but also how to make more alien player characters for Aeon so you can get that little more of that space opera vibe in your cool. game. Cool. Well, we're fantastic. really loving. We're really yeah. loving our Aeon. We're doing game. our Let's Play right now, um, and actually we should be wrapping up Shadowrun relatively shortly, probably in a couple month or two. Um, and then we'll be hopping over to Aeon and sh- showing that to our patrons. Yeah, and we're, actually, we're actually playing tomorrow. So yeah, I'm, we're I'm actually, yeah, looking forward to that. We're, so we're enjoying the system. We're learning a lot from it. Um, and we think you, besides Pugmire and this game, you guys have done a great job. Um, I think Onyx Path, we've always said this repeatedly, is in very good hands. So Thank you. Um, if anyone uh, wants to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, you can find me at just about any social media site at Eddie Fate, which is E-D-D-Y-F-A-T-E. Um, you can go to my website, eddiefate.com. You can go to my company website, pugsteady.com. Uh, or you can uh, reach out uh, through the Onyx Path website, which is theonyxpath.com. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much, Eddie, for this interview. It's been v- uh, just a treat. Yeah, thanks so much for coming out, man. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. No time. Uh, have a good day.
That was a really cool interview, guys. He's so nice. He is really nice. Yeah, he's a really cool guy. Um, I always love talking to him. Um, Pugmire, like, I like Pugmire. Now I think I really like Pugmire. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, if you couldn't probably tell by the interview, I didn't know fuck all. <laughs> so I was just kind of going, it's like, yeah, it's Pupper game. And <laughs> it's, pupper. it's Pupper Night game. K- K- pupper K- Night, I K- love him. it. Kidum game. It's also Kidum game. But now that he, I did not know anything about the super sciencey aspect of it, um, the sort of the mechanics, metaphysics and mechanics going hand in hand with you know lifespans of animals being shorter, therefore you get fewer levels. I'm Mar- sad again. Sad. <laughs> You're, you should be. Mm-hmm. But, but all the really cool weird stuff that can happen in that game because of the ancient history. Oh, that was something we never got into. They use plastic as currency. Yeah. They use plastic stuff because it doesn't degrade over rapidly. It doesn't as rapidly decay and break down. They use it as currency in Pugmire. Some useful script right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. But yeah, no, I, I definitely there. I've got so many games like that. I after a long dearth of no tabletop whatsoever. Yeah, no, you just uh, now it. it's now I, I I took too much, man. I took too much. Uh, you gotta you gotta be wor- You gotta be careful about that. My schedule is filling up pretty quick. Yeah, I'm like, uh, I really want to do but some other I'm games. Stepping, I'm stepping back from LARP, so yeah. I think that that's gonna be good. I'm not. I'll just join more tabletop games. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so Ryan Joseph I, I did that this weekend. That's right. In my gaming thing, I did that this weekend. Yep. I got a I got a tick on my ear. Oh no, that's one of the, one of the downsides of going out and LARPing. Yeah, you, you have gonna to get the infestations. You, you interact with the outside, Ryan. Uh, uh, I've warned and, you about and, that. I am not good at the outside. And, and, and in relationship to Pugmire, ticks are a thing you can fight. Oh, man. Insects that, are a big enemy that they I have bet. to deal with. I bet they're like the dire creature. Yeah, dire yeah. They're, they're like, you have to fit full-size, big he, an, human-size ants. Yeah, stuff he, like that. he mentioned, yeah, like sort of having analogs in the to the D&D sphere of like stuff what we would deal with. Like, I picture the ants as your kobolds, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of cool stuff and little things that they, they've got in that book. There, There's a lot of custom stuff because he even has an entire section of the book we didn't get into the interview. Is If you want to port Pugmire to other systems or if you want to bring other OGL systems, a.k.a. D&D 5th Ed, mm-hmm. and you want to port it into Pugmire, feel free. Go ahead, su- ahead. It's super easy. Personal, it's super easy. Personally, I'm all for the simplify it down to its basis, basis components because at the end of the day, like, you know – randomness is cool and all but <laughs> you, you don't need too many gears it, certain gameplay requires a certain style of game right if you want a simple game that you can just kind of futz around with whimsy you, ain't crunchy how yeah, about that <laughs> yeah whimsy and crunchy crunchy can be fun in its own right but also just being loosey-goosey is also fun god damn it what just uh, things are happening in my head like they involve monarchies of Mao and Dune and you like, can totally weird, do that. Psych- oh weird psychedelic cat adventures yes Catrakis. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it's a giant sandbox <laughs> <laughs> the spice must flow the spice, the must, spice flow. must flow try so I may to, roll around just in it. It. now I'm just seeing cats rolling around in dunes yeah try not to poop everywhere <laughs> you must <laughs> Yeah, I've already said, and you hate this in the interview. I just want to roll. I just want to role play my cat Jack because he's a giant, giant, big doofus of a cat. I mean, I think that's kind of standard, like for Pugmire and and whatnot. You play your own pet. Yes, wow. I mean, that's that's like I, mandatory. It's your first I, character. I need the Roadway to Rodentia expansion to come out <laughs> so I can play Rodentia. So you know, to be my you know, my <laughs> your, your boys, one of my boys, yeah. probably the biggest doofiest one because he's adorable. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, I mean, that again, the interview was super great. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully, that we've had three jam-packed interviews in a row. Next episode will be a little bit more low-key and a little bit more standard. Are you sure? Are you sure we're not doing another interview? Who the now? hell knows? I don't how, know. At this how point. many more interviews is it going to take to get our numbers? I've up? got some ideas. Oh. I've got some ideas down the line. I, I just got an email from Mike Merles. What's, what's <laughs> well, this? No, yeah. that's, that's a lie. That's a lie. Actually, <laughs> loved, to get Jeremy I love Crawford. I've been, I did deep diving Critical Role. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would actually eventually like love to have someone on from Critical Role or Critical Hit. Yeah. One of my other actual play guys. Matt, that Matt, to- Matt Mercer or Chris Perkins. Yeah, we got Matt Mercer on this motherfucker. There would be a lot. There would be a really large upswing in downloads for that one episode, at the very least. Yeah, yeah I'm. Uh, should, I, I want to talk about actual, like, like the, the 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 history and sort of the the ascension of actual plays and mm-hmm. what that all entails and all the fun and interesting I mean, things it involves. It's kind of the unknown territories. It's kind of the new frontier and yep. and this thing that we talk about. Yeah, um, actually, I want to before we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to Critical Hit. Uh, it's a role playing actual play. It's a D and D one that fourth edition. They've been going for like eight years. I want to give them a shout out and I want everyone to go and pick it up and listen to him because the creator of it um, sort of expressed some of his frustrations last night on Twitter concerning how he feels that he was a little overshadowed by Critical Role because Critical Role became a lot later than his and other people's actual plays. But Critical Role has gotten all of the attention and like being the, hey, we brought it all to you. And it's like, well, there are other companies that have been doing this for a long time. And I think it behooves anyone who loves actual plays. Go look up Critical Hit, look at the older guys and really start picking them up because also you, you owe it to them. Because if you enjoy that stuff, that's where that stuff came also from. Also, respect eight years of yeah. fourth edition. Yep. Oh, well, my God. On and off, but like he would go in in seasons, and then he would take like six to eight months off. But they're in their last arc now; they're an epic level. I believe believe we are we are quickly meandering away from the point that we spoke to Eddie Webb, so we should save this for Patreon. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, Yeah. So everyone from here, go where your fun is. Go roll some dice from here. Hey, Matthew here. I just wanted to let you know, if you want to give feedback to Polyhedron, you can go to polyhedronpodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to the show's Twitter handle at polyhedroncast. Uh, if you really like to help us out, you can go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash polyhedron. Uh, give us a buck a month and become one of our bosses and really support the show. And if you're looking to get in touch with us on Twitter, you can find Matthew at BioImportance. You can find Scott at DivisMallCav. And you can find Ryan at Arduous. You want to spell it? R-J-U-O-U-S. And finally, just so we can wrap it up here, if you are listening to this on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere, give us a five-star review. It really helps our exposure. All right. Thanks, guys.